Good morning. Good morning. Oh, that was louder than I thought it was going to be. Um, I was going to start with a, just a simple Holy Spirit prayer. So can we say the Holy Spirit prayer in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. What? Oh, I get to look at myself. Yeah. Well, the sun is coming. It needs to be a little closer to you. Okay. okay. Everybody hear me on the Zoom? So I was telling the leaders on Friday that if this was a television series, um, this episode would be a fitting sequel to to last week's episode. So I'm going to begin like I did in the meeting with uh, previously on women of the Old Testament. (laughs) But we finished our journey with Miriam last week in the book of Numbers. And we learned about Moses and Aaron's sin and God's decision not to allow them to enter the promised land. By the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses has died, and God has commissioned Joshua to succeed him. In today's lesson, Joshua is poised to lead the Israelites across the Jordan to take possession of the land God has promised to them. And as part of this preparation, he sends two spies ahead of him to scope out the land of Cana, the land of the city of Jericho. This is the second sort of reconnaissance mission into the land of Cana. Because in the book of Numbers, God asked Moses to send 12 scouts, one from each tribe, to scope out the Canaanite territories. And we're going to call these guys the Doubting Scouts. Because even after witnessing the Lord's parting of the Red Sea and observing all the wonders in the desert that the Lord had worked on their behalf, these scouts were terrified by the Canaanites that they ran across and by what they perceived to be their superior strength and numbers. They returned from their mission totally convinced that they would not be able to enter the promised land, that they would not be victorious even with God's help. Only two of the scouts, Caleb and Joshua, trusted in the strength of the Lord, and God rewarded them by making them the only members of their generation to be allowed to enter the promised land. They were the only two. Today we hear the tale of Joshua's spies and their encounter with a Canaanite woman, Rahab, Through her great faith and God's grace, she changes the trajectory of her life, while at the same time saving the lives of herself and her family and the Israelites, ultimately. Her heroism earns her an honorable mention in the Bible itself and in Jewish and Christian tradition. So what we know about Rahab in the Bible and in in Christian tradition, there's a, there's a, Georgia talked a little bit about this last week, but um, uh, the Jewish people have something similar to what we have in the Apocrypha or the auxiliary texts of the Bible that didn't make it into the Bible. There's stories that you don't hear in the Bible, but they're sort of a part of our tradition and our history. One of those examples is the story of St. Peter when he uh, tries to run away from Rome and Jesus stops him on the road and says, you know, get back there um, where he ultimately goes. Um, The Jewish people have a lot of collections of stories like these um, and they're called the Midrash and there are a few others. So when I was doing this, I kind of looked at the Midrash to see what they had to say about Rahab. But in the Bible, uh, Rahab appears by name in the book of Joshua, the book of Matthew, the letter to the Hebrews, and the letter of James. In all references except for Matthew, she is called Rahab the harlot. Pretty explicit. 
from the Hebrew word zona, meaning prostitute. There's some speculation among Jewish scholars that perhaps the word innkeeper is a better description, and you're gonna see that in your footnotes of your Bible in, in some cases. Um, but this seems to be based on a mistranslation of the original Hebrew Bible into the later Aramaic text. So we don't have any, any evidence to support the fact that she is anything but a prostitute. And in fact, most scholars agree that to change or clean up her image is to really ignore the true magnitude of her story because it's precisely because of her great sin and her profession that her faith and her conversion are so remarkable. So everywhere in the Bible that we see, she's referred to as Rahab the harlot. So we're pretty sure that's what she is. Um, in Jewish tradition, the Midrash names Rahab as one of the four most beautiful women in the Bible, alongside Sarah, Abigail, and Esther. It's said that following her conversion, she married Joshua himself and became the mother of many princes and prophets, among them Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Baruch. Now, this is a Jewish tradition. She is held up as an oracle of Israel's occupation of the Promised Land, because unlike the doubting scouts in the Book of Numbers, Rahab confidently and faithfully declares that dread has fallen on the inhabitants of Canaan and that they all fear Israel. This is the confident message that the spies take back to Joshua. So Joshua gets better news than Moses got in the Book of Numbers. <clears throat> so I read a, a prominent Jewish educator. His name is Tikva. Did we lose it? Did you see if it's still on? Did you hit that? No. Can you hear me? No. Hold on one second. Did we run out of battery? No, battery's still there. Hold on one second. We're checking technical difficulties. Sorry. It's all right. No, still not. Can you can talk loud. Okay. I'll try talking loud in the meanwhile. Anyway, um, so she she has a confident message for the spies. They will be victorious because she's heard that God has given them the land, and that all the inhabitants of Israel of, of Canaan are in fear of them. So I read uh, a Jewish educator say, um, his name is Tikva Freimer Kensky. He says that in her proclamation as an oracle, <clears throat> Rahab, who begins triply marginalized, a Canaanite, a woman, and a prostitute, moves to the center as the bearer of a divine message and the herald of Israel in its new land. Christian tradition is a little different. We hold that Rahab married Salmon, who was one of the spies and a prince of Judah, and that she is one of just five women mentioned in Matthew's genealogy of Christ. She's the mother of Boaz and the great-great-grandmother of King David. She is thought to prefigure the salvation of the Gentiles 
because she is an outsider who hears the word of God, receives it, repents, and is saved. And she also is thought to prefigure the church itself because under her roof, all those were saved, but outside of her house, there was no salvation. And this is kind of the way we look at the church being the place of salvation. The red cord which she hangs from her window symbolizes the blood of Christ by which all are redeemed. Both Jews and Christians celebrate Rahab as a woman of courage who in great faith risked her own life to bring about God's plan and was rewarded for her actions. As it says in Joshua 6.25, because Rahab the harlot had hidden the messengers whom Joshua had sent, Joshua spared her with her family and all her kin who continue in the midst of Israel to this day. For me, this is a story about conversion, redemption, and God's boundless mercy. So let's talk a little bit about Rahab's conversion and how it began. It began like most conversions begin, and as with many people who don't know God, Rahab's conversion began in darkness. She is said to have been around 50 years old at the time the spies showed up at her door. It's believed she had been practicing prostitution from a young age for almost the entire 40 years that the Israelites, I cannot say that word, the Israelites were wandering in the desert. The Canaanites were an idolatrous people with many evil practices. Raymond Brown in his book, The Message of Deuteronomy, describes the Canaanite lifestyle. Canaanite worship was socially destructive. It had a low estimate of human life. It ignored the highest values, both in the family and in the wider community, love, loyalty, purity, peace, and security. And it encouraged the view that all these things were inferior to material prosperity, physical satisfaction, and human pleasure. Does that sound at all familiar to you? Hold, please. Yeah. Huh. Let me see if this will help. Should we pray over this? <laughs> this is a sign. Lay hands on the microphone. In the name of Jesus Christ. Test, one, two. No. No. Okay, keep yelling. Okay, I'll just yell. This is a sign. There must be something really important I was supposed to say. So, um, sorry, so we left off talking about what the Canaanite, so basically they had no moral compass or code. They weren't taking care of the, the, the people and they were instilling a message of materialism and physical and human pleasure seeking. <clears throat> so in many ways, Rahab no, had no frame of reference or rec- to recognize her sin. As it says in Proverbs 4:19, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. The Canaanites are described, as Isaiah says in 9-2, as a people who walked in darkness. That's kind of a common theme in the Old Testament for people who don't know God. They're said to be in spiritual darkness, to live in darkness. 
But as we know, sometimes darkness is the place where we come to see our need for God and where we meet God. And that's what happened to Rahab. So how did a woman who lived for 50 years in darkness come to be seen as such an example of faith for future generations? What was her journey of faith? The Catholic author, Peter Kreef, I don't know if any of you guys have ever read him, he's an apologist. He separates the concept of faith into four separate acts. There's an act of the heart, which is the center of the soul where God speaks to us. An act of emotion, which is a feeling of trust, confidence, assurance, which helps to engender hope and peace. An act of the mind, an intellectual belief in the principles of your faith. This would be like the creed, the laws, anything that makes up the principles and basics of our faith. That's your intellectual faith. You know that. You know what those things are. An act of the will, which is a commitment to obey God's will, faithfulness or fidelity, which manifests itself in behavior, and that is good works. Rahab's faith developed in the same way. Well before the spies arrived in Jericho, the seeds of her faith had been planted. Her heart, so the heart faith, was stirred by the stories of God's miraculous deeds among the Israelites in the desert. The conquest of the Israelite and their success, the fear of her Canaanite kinsmen, gave her confidence and hope so that's the emotional faith that Israel was the one, Israel's God was the one true God. When the spies came to her door, she immediately made the decision to protect them, showing a faithfulness and a commitment to God's plan. As is evidenced by her prominent position in Jewish and Christian history, we are confident that Rahab fully repented of her sin. And while living among the Israelites, I cannot say that word. <laughs> What is that? The Israelites continued to grow in her faith. God led her on a complete journey of faith, pulling her up out of the darkness into the light and giving her a renewed purpose, a new beginning. Wouldn't we like to hear more stories like that in the world today? Wouldn't we like to hear more conversion stories like Rahab's in the world today? Rahab was converted by her journey of faith, and she was redeemed by her perfect response. In this way, she has always stood out in favorable contrast to many of the faithless Israelites of her day. She not only confessed her sins, but she heard the word of God and kept it. While so many of God's chosen people ignored or disobeyed the word of God time and time again, and Jesus makes the same criticism of the Pharisees when he says in Matthew 21:31, Amen, I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. God shows mercy to Rahab by saving her and her family from the destruction he has planned for Jericho and the remaining inhabitants of Canaan. In his quest to rid the land of the sinful, in, the sinful influence of the Canaanites, he spares the faithful, just as he spared the few faithful inhabitants of Sodom in the book of Genesis and the repentant Ninevites in the book of Jonah. He rewards Rahab's humility and her broken spirit 
As Psalm 51 says, a contrite, humbled heart, O God, you will not scorn. Rahab's forgiveness is proof that God does not hold our sins against us. When we confess our sin and resolve not to sin again, we leave our past behind. As St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, sorry, we become a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Rahab's resolve to move forward and to allow God to transform her life is proof that a bad past doesn't have to follow us. As author Liz Curtis Higgs says, and I don't know if you guys have ever read this Bad Girls of the Bible. It's pretty cool. She talks about all the, the, the marginal girls of the Bible. Um, but she says, it is not you, who you were that matters to God. It is who you are in him and who you are becoming by the power of his spirit. So it's not who you were, but it's who you are in him and who you're becoming in the power of his spirit. So I thought a lot about how um, community and how in Rahab's time, the Jewish community, how in our time, our Christian community, how they play a role in conversion of souls how they play a role in redemption, how they play a role in, in a good life after that redemption. And I was kind of thinking about that and about how sometimes we get away, we get ourselves in the way of God's redeeming grace. And then two Sundays ago, I was watching the 1030 Mass and I was pleased to find Monsignor Lopez was doing the Mass, which he's my favorite. <laughs> and he gave a sermon, um, about the first reading which was the call of Samuel and the gospel which is the call of the first apostles Andrew and Peter and he said that if he is Monsignor Lopez said this if he is fortunate enough to get to heaven <laughs> and we'll stop there because you know he's going straight straight up if he is fortunate enough to get to heaven his path will be paved by the many faithful family members and others who have guided him on his journey, either by physically guiding him, leading by example, or praying for him throughout his life. And he called this a chain of grace. I don't know if any of you guys were listening to the sermon, but it, it was a great sermon. He called it a chain of grace. And he also said that when we get to heaven, God will ask us one question, and I'm sure all of you who know him know what this question is, but I didn't know that because it was the first for me. He'll ask us one question, which is, who did you bring with you? Who did you bring with you? <clears throat> and this kind of put another layer for me onto Rahab's story, which was the role of her community in her faith journey down the road, because it must have been significant because she lived with them all her life, and she became a faithful Jew and a faithful Are you about to finish? prophetess. No, I got a little ways. Can you hear me now? Oh, better. You guys just missed all the boring stuff on Zoom, so you're good. Anyway, um, it, it kind of gave me another perspective on how they must have helped Rahab with this, not with her conversion, but with her life 
in Christ and in, in God afterwards. And it made me think about how we can do that today or how we should be doing that today. Um, and I, I don't know about you guys, um, but in the last 10 months or so, well, maybe not the last 10, but certainly in the last five months or so, I have really not felt much like a chain of grace. I don't know about any of you, but I find, um, and I'm sure all of you are finding in the pandemic and with all that's been going on in our political world and all that's going on everywhere else, um, it's been tough to be a chain of grace for anybody because it's so hard to feel grace yourself. And we're not getting the grace in the sacraments as often as we used to do. And it doesn't feel like I'm being a chain of grace for anybody, to be honest. <clears throat> so I don't know if any of you are feeling that same way. Um, but I think that we could argue that the times haven't changed that much since Rahab was alive. There's still a lot of spiritual darkness in the world. Sin is still with us. And a lot of spirits are broken. Spirits of the faithful and spirits of the not faithful. It's very difficult to love our neighbor. And it's super, super difficult to pray for the souls of those who we see as beyond redemption, because we've now all figured out who those people are supposed to be. So what I was thinking is that I, in my own personal life, God is calling me to try to change that in my own life, to try to change my example of grace for others, to try to change the way that I am showing my faith to others. Um, so that was kind of one of the things I thought of. So I thought I had a list of things that I would like to do for myself. And I don't know if any of these could be helpful to you. But one of the things is I'm going to try to reorganize my prayer life and get it back on track. Because now that all my kids have been home and things have been crazy and I've been running here and there, it's gotten a little off track. I find it harder to make time in the mornings when I used to make time. I'm praying a lot in my car. I'm not taking dedicated time where I sit and do those things. So I'm going to try to restructure my prayer life a little bit. I'm going to go back to sharing some prayers. I used to send um, scripture references, reflections, devotions to my um, kids and to my friends. And I don't do that as much anymore. Mostly because they're with me and they get to hear them. But, you know, <laughs> the people who aren't with me, I used to send to my niece. I used to send to a lot of people that I knew. I'm going to start trying to do that more often, at least a couple times a week. I'm going to add more service to my list of daily activities because I find that really helps me to figure out where I'm supposed to be, is to be serving. I'm going to reach out more regularly to friends who need more of my time. My friend with cancer, my neighbor who suffers from depression, my friend who lives in London and seems to be on a permanent quarantine for the last however many months, and she's lonely. I'm going to find ways, and this is the hardest one, to actively and purposefully pray for those people that I have harbored some ill will for over the past several months. 
And there's probably plenty of those people that we all have. We all have that we, you know, have just not thought well of. Um, and those are the people that are the hardest to pray for. I'm going to take better care of my mom and dad, my mother and father-in-law, who are feeling a lot of loneliness during this pandemic. So those are the things that I think are things that I'm going to focus on. But what I was wanting to leave you with was just the idea that redemption and forgiveness and mercy are given to us every single day by God in so very many ways. And I believe that it's our responsibility to try to extend that same mercy and forgiveness and chance for redemption to others wherever we possibly can. And I know it's very hard in this world right now, but I think it can be done. And I think that God always says we should be the light in the darkness. And sorry, this is my last one. In Matthew 6:23, he says, if the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And I think that's really true. If we, who are supposed to be the light, have darkness, then we make the world all that much darker. So I think Rahab teaches us that God has nothing that he cannot forgive and that there is no soul that he cannot turn and there is no soul that he cannot use for his benefit and for the benefit of the world. So I think we should follow her example, make our own conversions if we need to, and start living a light, a little bit, a life a little bit more in the light. I'm speaking for myself. I can't speak for all of you. You guys are all probably doing wonderful things in the light. <laughs> so I'm not trying to judge. Just saying, if you're not, and I'm, I'm guilty right now, I'm being very honest, if you're not, um, try to make a change, a little conversion of your own. And that's, that's it. That's all I got. <laughs> Except, wait, we're going to do the prayer of St. Francis to finish. So we're going to pray the prayer of St. Francis. Sorry. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. There you go.